0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've always been fascinated by the human voice, which experts say is as unique to each person as their fingerprint. In these podcasts, we celebrate the human voice in all its wonderfully diverse forms, young and old, different accents and cultural contexts. Writers sometimes struggle to find their own voice but you can kind of tell when someone is speaking from a place of authenticity and integrity. That's when I most love listening to voices. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund.
1: Part of it is the... The wonderful excitement and headiness of living through the digital age there's so much to discover and the great celebrities of our time it seems to be are the Facebook people and the Steve Jobs and the people who are behind these devices and we want to participate in this festival of creativity that they have started but we have to remember that ultimately it's not about the devices it's about us it's about being people and making the most of our lives together and we should use the devices wisely so that they enable us to have better lives and to relate more closely. A
0: young family commits to techno-free weekends to prevent computers and smartphones from taking over their lives. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. The 24-7 society is taking its toll. Increasingly, people are expected to be on call at all times, a condition made possible partly by the array of digital devices that seem to own many of us as much as we own them. Portable, handheld technology allows instant communication and access to knowledge that would have been unthinkable even a few short years ago. But more and more, people feel that this astonishing
1: resource carries a high price. Ironically enough, I tweeted this recently on Twitter. I I asked, is the smartphone the new sweatshop? And I had this deluge of messages from people I don't know saying, thank you, I can't believe you said that, I feel that way, it's happening, I'm a slave to this, how can I get out of it? Many of them young people. As
0: a former staff writer for The Washington Post and an author, William Powers is steeped in the information age, The tools of his trade permit writing and researching any time at home and practically whenever he wishes on the road, and it's this unlimited ability that journalists of a previous generation would have envied, but that Powers has now come to view as a double-edged sword.
1: On the one hand, being connected in this way is simply amazing. I have found these devices so exciting from the start, and I've been a, a user, in many cases an early adopter of these devices, They're thrilling to me. I love technology. I've been writing about it for a large part of my career. And I completely see, in fact felt viscerally for years, the draw of these devices for my own work, for writing, for thinking, for interacting with other people who are thinking and getting their ideas and sharing, collaborating. It's fantastic.
0: But as William Powers points out in his book Hamlet's Blackberry... Instant unlimited communication is so dazzling that it can be a giant multi-sensory distraction. We can so easily get caught up in momentary fascination that ends up diverting us from
1: more focused pursuits. It's a burden also, in addition to all these creative potentials and all these wonderful things we can do with digital. It's a lot to carry around all the time. We carried around inside of our heads, and I would argue inside of our souls, really inside of our inner selves, this new burden of living in this world where we're all so close to each other effectively and can reach out to each other so easily. And that's the issue, that's the conundrum. I call it the conundrum of connectedness that we're trying to solve.
0: Of course, not everyone uses computers and smartphones, but the digital divide, especially in the United States, has begun to close. The vast majority of Americans are internet users now, and the number continues to rise year by year. For William Powers, who lives with his wife and child on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, internet access translates into a lot of time staring in front
1: of an electronic screen. My time was being sort of sucked into the screen, but also on another, I think, more profound level, there is a screen state of mind and a screen way of thinking that is Relatively superficial, short attention span, very goal directed. I'm doing this, and now I'm doing this, and now I'm doing this. One person has called it the search and destroy state of mind. You're going toward these short, you're going from link to link. You're going from A to B to D, and if you can't get to D, you get very impatient. There's an aspect of it that's not. Because of the
0: instantness of the. the inst-
1: yes, the, and you get used to the instant quality of it. And uh, there's there's just an aspect of that kind of thinking that although in some ways more efficient and certainly miraculous in many ways that you can go from here to some 16th century manuscript in the British Museum in a matter of seconds and be reading what that person wrote all those centuries ago and enjoying it, that's wonderful. But there is an element of using screens to interact with the world and being in that two-dimensional interface that is different from being in the real world and that actually affords a kind of thinking that I find, and I think many others are finding, doesn't take me to the depth I enjoy in my thinking and that it means the most to me.
0: The Internet offers a vast galaxy of possibilities. Literally billions of websites, social networks, songs, videos, games, and other electronic experiences are available immediately at the click of a mouse. Although entire libraries can be accessed this way, the experience of flitting from screen to screen can be drug-like driven by an unquenchable
1: thirst for greater and greater stimulation. It's an addiction for some people. I think people who have addictive personalities anyway are more likely to be susceptible to that. There are marriages, many marriages and families are suffering because one or more of the members uh, can't pull themselves away from the screen. And I write about, my wife and I had, in the book, I write about how we had great concern about that with our family and some some practical things we did to try and combat that.
0: Can you tell us about some of the concerns in your family?
1: Sure. So about four or five years ago, we, um, we began to realize that the more connected we got in the technological sense, connected to the outside world as a family and as a household, the more we were being pulled away from each other within the house toward our screens, the easier it was to connect to the world at large digitally. The more tempting it was to do that, uh, rather than connecting with each other, I call it the vanishing family trick that we started to do inadvertently after dinner, during the week or on the weekends. We had a little tradition of gathering in the living room, just family time together, and we began to do. Once we had the wireless broadband distributed all through the house, and it was so easy to go online and check and do all these interesting things, I realized, i I I noticed that we would be in the living room, and after five minutes, somebody would suddenly say, "I have to go." get a glass of water, or I have to go to the bathroom, or I have to check something. That's the all-purpose phrase. I'll be right back. And that one person would peel off, and then another of us would say, there were just three of us. We have a son. Uh, Second person would say the similar thing and disappear. I'll be right back. The last person would inevitably say, well, I guess I'll go check something, too. And suddenly, the living room would be empty, except for our pets sort of staring at each other, saying, what happened to this (laughs) wonderful family gathering? Or they seemed to be thinking that. And we were leaving each other for the screen.
0: So William Powers, his wife Martha Sherrill, also a former Washington Post writer turned author,
1: and their young son ventured into what for them were uncharted waters. We just decided to try an experiment where we would unplug as a family on the weekends, the old-fashioned idea of the weekend as time to refresh yourself, time away from the crowd, time away from the burdens of everyday life.
0: Known, uh in earlier years
1: and to some people now as sabbath. Sabbath, exactly, we called it, so we called it the internet sabbath. And it was very simple. We have a one household modem that serves all of us wirelessly our computers. So we unplugged it Friday night and we said, "Okay, from here on out, every Friday we're going to unplug and not be plugged back in again until Monday morning. We'll be offline 2 days a week and see how we do." It was very, very difficult in the beginning. Serious withdrawal issues. What was hard about it? We were completely hooked, and it's funny. It wasn't just on a practical level where someone needed directions and they couldn't get MapQuest or someone needed a fact for homework and they couldn't go check it on Google. It was almost as if those first few weekends, we didn't know who we were anymore. It was almost a a sense of the house being robbed of its most fundamental energy force, this thing that had been coming in from outside. We were wandering around like ghosts, really, bumping into each other, having trouble thinking about how to structure our day. We had been structuring much of our time around those visits to the screen. And we had to help each other. And we had to come up with things to do, to take the place of that, activities, and they were nice things. Suddenly we were spending time, we live in a relatively rural area, we were spending more time outside in the woods and in the pond and so forth, and other activities that would fill in for what had been screen time. And in the beginning that was hard, but as time passed and a couple months went by, we realized, wait a minute, this stuff is incredibly fulfilling and enriching. Why Why were we abandoning this in the first place? The walk in the woods, the conversation, just the two of us on the bench out and back. Why hadn't we been doing this now for so long? Why had we chosen what I call the digital crowd over these family members whom we love so much? And it had been thoughtless. It had never been conscious. We had just stumbled into it. We hadn't examined it. And through the means of this ritual, this Sabbath, we had a chance to examine it and realized how valuable this experiment had been and now I don't think any of us would look back including my son who's now 13 who's become a bit of a proselytizer among his friends for (laughs) this idea of he's got a pretty cool thing going on at his home he does and he uses it the thing he does the strategy he uses is, is I've heard him do this is he tells the friend look we can put our mobile phones in this basket and go out back and work on the fort and the parents won't know where we are so it's kind of like playing dangerous in a way and it hasn't occurred to most kids today, from my anecdotal experience, that this could be fun. But when they try it, they find it pretty intriguing.
0: We're talking with William Powers, author of Hamlet's Blackberry. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, The Digital Sabbath, check our website, humanmedia.org. Nothing in nature is meant to persist unrelentingly. Just as the seasons turn according to their mysterious clockwork, and human fatigue inevitably lures us into daily sleep and regeneration, the rhythm of life depends on our ability to take a breather from it all. The body needs downtime for renewal. The mind and soul also need a respite
1: from the demands of worldly intensity. William Powers. It's captured beautifully by that old slogan from before our time, but we all still know it. I think I think it was for Coca-Cola, the pause that refreshes. You know, you have a pause in your life, and it does refresh you. You've been busy. You've been caught up in your life and all these things you do that many of which are wonderful, but they take energy, and they, um, they have their own momentum and you get all wrapped up in these things and, and that's all you're thinking about and you, you lose the wide view of your life and why you're here and, and you lose a, a sort of a awareness of the moment and, and what it's all about and when you have that pause, it centers you again. You go back to the center and you can think again about what the point of all this is and just on a, on a physiological level, you can indeed refresh yourself. You can, you can recharge and, and that's all important but on another level, on a really truly spiritual level, When you never have these pauses, you don't have a chance to take all these things that you're doing in your outward life, if I can use that concept, and take it inward and and, and really use it inside yourself, really deep inside yourself where we make new associations, where we create meaning for ourselves, where we come up with inspirations for our work and the things we're bringing back to the world, and build something new, build something fresh inside you, and then... Let it blossom in the world. Take it back to the world. We need this space apart to do that. You know, in, in my own experience writing this book, I can tell you I had a very fortunate opportunity to spend three weeks at one of these writers' colonies, artist colonies, where you're off in the country somewhere and they give you a little studio in the woods and you're there all day alone. And the only time you see other people is when you walk up the trail to meet the other artists who are there in their shacks for dinner. And it was fantastic to have that time in the woods to really take all the ideas I've been working with for this book and finally really take them inside and synthesize them and have time to think and then bring it out on the page in front of me. Actually, it was bring it out on the screen because I had a notebook computer but with me but not connected. Um, and so there I was in my own space away from the world I was trying to write about and make sense of creating something I hoped to bring back to the world. But in order to do that, I had to exit for a while and take it all inward. And I think we all need to do that, no matter what kind of work we do. So you
0: think there's something innate to the human being that requires digestion time. Then it's interesting how physically, when we're digesting, there's certain things we can't be doing. I remember, you know, always hearing, don't go swimming an hour after Mm -hmm. you have a meal. Because there are certain physical rules that kick in for digestion, and it may be like that.
1: Yes, it's a wonderful metaphor. I hadn't even thought of that, but it's absolutely true. You know, there's all these words associated with digestion, not just in human beings, but in animals. I think about the ruminant class of animals and this idea of rumination. Like cows. Cows and so forth. And, and, And there are all kinds of Intellectual and spiritual digestive processes that I think we need space and time apart. Not a, completely apart from everybody. I mean, you can spend intimate time with another person having a conversation about an idea and really go somewhere very special with it. That's harder to do if you're on Facebook and you have a thousand friends on there who are sending you updates every three seconds, somebody. And you're trying to digest all of that and keep it all straight in your mind, and you just wind up clicking around and again, you wind up skirting the sur- sk- um, skating the surface rather than going deep and that's the word I keep coming back to in the book is depth I think we're sacrificing depth for superficiality and so so
0: this this instant communication through the all the digital platforms uh, produce superficiality and inhibit
1: depth. Right. What people have been trying to ensure over the centuries, as civilization has grown and cities have blossomed and civil and, and, and everyday life has become fuller of stuff and information and other people. What 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 smart people and wise people have been trying to remind themselves is that busyness, all that stuff that happens around us, it can be wonderful, but it's really the enemy of depth. And you need You need space apart. You need time apart to go to those deeper places that we want to go to. And we can solve this problem. It just requires some thought and some consciousness raising. But what about my need to be productive? What about the emails that are accumulating as we speak here? We have to take care of those. There's no question we all have a practical need to take care of the the business that comes in for our work that we have to do to support ourselves. But what I point out in the book, and when I say this in my public appearances, I get a lot of head nods in the audience, is that a lot of the stuff we do on the screen and that we go to the screen to spend time doing is, is, is self-created busyness. We add our own element of, of um, time and energy spent that isn't actually mandatory, that isn't being imposed on us by others. We choose to do it, and I think we're choosing to do it without really thinking about it. We're just kind of stumbling into it. Part of it is the the wonderful excitement and headiness of living through the digital age. There's so much to discover. And the great celebrities of our time, it seems to be, are the Facebook people and the Steve Jobs and the people who are behind these devices. And we want to participate in this festival of creativity that they have started. But we have to remember that ultimately it's not about the devices. It's about us. It's about being people and making the most of our lives together. And we should use the devices wisely so that they enable us to have better lives and to relate more closely. So when we almost compulsively
0: rely upon the devices, if we manufacture a need to keep going back to the the digital well, what are we
1: distracting ourselves from? I think we are distracting ourselves, in a sense, from the very depth I'm talking about. I think going deep in life is challenging and it scary. Can, scary, it can be scary, and on some level, we know it's worth it. We know it's worth the trouble. We've been, we've learned that since we were children, and when we've had experiences of depth, they changed our lives. But it re, it, it require it takes. All of us, to do that, you have to bring your whole self to something that's truly deep, whether it's a relationship or something you're reading, an idea you're working on, a project. And that's a lot to think about taking on. And so, so much easier to be able to be in this two-dimensional world where you're just clicking around and it doesn't require so much of you. And here you are at the end of the day. Why not go spend an hour at the screen just checking out these relatively amusing things on YouTube and so forth. Why not do that every night? Why not do it four hours a day? You begin to fall into these habits where that's what you do. And if you get into that cycle, it's almost like a hamster wheel, you lose sight of the fact that you are running away from this other kind of experience that you've known for your whole life was the most valuable. And you've kind of exited it out of your life and that's what I'm saying in the book is, hey wait a minute, wake up. We're not showing up for our lives anymore. And we need to do that.
0: Although the characteristics of the current technological landscape are unlike any in recorded history, the digital age is hardly the first time that humanity has felt overwhelmed by change and in need of an inner reprieve from outer intensity. And so William Powers has rummaged through the reflections of bygone philosophers for guidance on coping with our contemporary conditions. He has drawn particular inspiration from Seneca, who lived in Rome 2,000 years ago and adjusted to the information changes of his day.
1: Mail delivery? Really had taken off in the Roman age. There were several mail deliveries a day, and people waited for them, wrapped, to see who was going to be in touch with them. What
0: would you get a a
1: papyrus in the you mail? You get papyrus, uh huh. And and people also were doing papyrus work for the first time. The equivalent of paperwork. Rome was a very busy place. And Seneca, who had, who belonged to the Stoic school of philosophy, and was a very busy person and for a while, were the most powerful person in the emp- in the empire, right under the emperor had wonderful thoughts about the importance of being able, even in a busy situation in the middle of a busy city, to, to focus your mind on one thought, one idea, one person and really go to that place with all of your resources and think about that one person. So
0: the opposite of distraction is focus.
1: Focus, exactly. And he was a master of focus, but more important, he writes about it in a very both beautiful and useful way. I also liked Seneca because he has a sense of humor about the problem and his writing is infused with this optimism that really appeals to me and also with a sense of, oh, it's not that hard. We can really overcome this challenge. And he, in one of the essays I quote he. He he does an experiment where he sits in a busy room over a spa, a spa, effectively a health club in Roman times, full of people lifting weights and grunting and getting massages, and he hears all those noises drifting up to the inn room where he's staying. And he sits down, and he does a little exercise where he focuses, he tunes out all of that, he turns it into white noise, and he demonstrates that we have the power to do that, even in a very busy situation, to create our own space apart, if you will. It's It's perhaps the ultimate human right. Exactly. It really is. I mean, it gets us back to our humanity in a very fundamental way. The other person I love, because I think he's he's misunderstood by people who haven't read him closely and thought about him, is Thoreau. Uh, Henry David Thoreau is thought of as a kind of escape artist from civilization, somebody who ran away and, and was ty- was done with all of that, done with all those people, done with technology in particular. He's thought of as a naturalist and someone who didn't believe in, in all this stuff we were adding on to civilization. The early 1800s? Yes, mid-1800s, telegraph and so forth. And he's very misunderstood, as I said, he really wasn't about running away. He was about striking a balance. In fact, that little cabin he built at Walden Pond was a very short walk to to Concord, where he had spent the village where he had spent his whole most of his life. He was back and forth constantly during those two years he was living there. He entertained as many as thirty people in the cabin at a time. He had a social life going. But the point was that he had marked off this space as a space where he had alone time and downtime when he wanted it. And he didn't have visitors all the time. He wasn't Mr. Social 24-7. He was trying to demonstrate that in a world in which suddenly people in Massachusetts were in touch with the whole world effectively through all these wires that were being strung around the world and, and all this busyness that was building up through the railroads and so forth, that you could still ground yourself in one place, in one space, a zone, if you will. That's what I call it in the book. I call it a Walden zone. I think that's a concept we could use today and create Walden zones of our own that we go to on a regular basis.
0: And certainly he knew how to pick a pond.
1: He did know how to pick a pond. It's still beautiful today.
0: It's just a magnificent uh, half-hour, 45-minute walk around Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, not very far from where we
1: sit. Yes, indeed. And, And you can almost feel why he went there even today 150 years later and what he was thinking it's a it's just a stunning scene yes and in fact anyone who's digitally overloaded can be inspired by going there i think and and perhaps have reason to go back to Thoreau and read some of his thoughts because they echo amazingly today and resonate today
0: The business world generates and consumes much of the new communication technology that eventually seeps into our daily lives. And so it is not surprising that corporations have a lot riding on how the workforce is
1: affected by the new information environment. William Powers. Forward-thinking businesses are urging employees to spend time away from the screen because they're realizing it's bad for productivity and bad for efficiency if people are toggling among these digital tasks all day and never stepping back and they're using po- the best of these companies are using positive goals they're setting up programs for example one at the Intel corporation is called quiet time where employees get quiet time for a given number of hours during the day or one day in the week is quiet day where they get to have non-digital time and they get to be away from the screen and the inbox and so forth.
0: Amazing that that is set at Intel.
1: Yeah, Intel, which helped give us the digital revolution. But, you know, the Silicon Valley companies were among the first to discover this problem of screens hurting productivity, even though they're meant to be productivity tools, because they have the most connected workers. So they have the people who are really spending the most time with these tools and discovering the downside. And here again, the idea is not to run away, but to strike a better balance. So how nourishing is quiet time? I think it's incredibly nourishing if you go into it with a positive goal. If you go into it thinking of it as a good in your life rather than a kind of a negative, a punishment. Or, or rather than a deprivation. Yes, rather than a deprivation. If it's, 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 it's very much like anyone who meditates. You know, meditation to the outsider who hasn't thought about the goals and why that person is sitting in that position doing that thing that doesn't look terribly productive or useful can look boring. But to the person who goes into it knowing where it can take you and the good things that meditation can bring you, it's, it can be the most thrilling part of your day, sitting there quietly and effectively doing nothing except... In the spirit and in the heart, all kinds of things are happening. Because you're being revitalized and recharged. Yes. I mean, this idea, you know, one of the things I try to revive in Hamlet's Blackberry is this idea that we have an inward life that is connected to but also different from our outward lives and that we need to spend time there. We need to go back to that place to refresh ourselves and revive. One of the
0: statements you make in the book of the two mental worlds everyone inhabits, the inner and the outer, the latter the outer world increasingly rules.
1: Yes, exactly. We, we are leaning in that direction again. And I say again because tech, new technologies, connective technologies, have a way of pushing us in that direction because they bring the world closer. And that's appealing for many good reasons. And we are built, as we've said earlier, to, 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 to want that, to connect. And so when a new technology comes along that connects us in a new way, suddenly we are leaning outward again, and we're spending more of our time and our resources and our energy there, and we sacrifice the inward. And I think we need reminders when that happens, and every generation that lives through this has people who come along. My philosophers all did this to remind people, wait a minute. You also have an inward life, don't forget it, because that's the whole point, really. That's where all the good stuff happens. And teachers are feeling this. They're feeling the pressure that these devices are bringing on students, on themselves, and on the school environment. And they're trying to wrestle with, I mean, schools are playing around with the idea of having non-digital rooms, walled-in zones, if you will, where this idea can be kept alive.
0: Thank you very much. We've been talking with William Powers. He's author of Hamlet's BlackBerry also a former staff writer for the Washington Post. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart and Jim Donahue. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media.
1: To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website, where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org.
0: This segment, The Digital Sabbath, with William Powers, is Humankind program number 165.
1: The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to
0: our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.